It's the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Sam Dolby. In 1947, there was a cholera epidemic in Egypt, possibly brought there by British troops. Whatever the source, the impact was terrible. Over 10,000 people died. Horse-drawn carts took their bodies away from their homes. Meanwhile, in the Iraqi capital of Baghdad, a young poet got to work, trying to match the sounds of words to the meaning of the horrifying losses. This is what she wrote. Al-Kolera. Sakana al-Laylu. Asghi ila waqa'a sadal annat. Fi umqil dhulmati. Tahta samti. Ala al-amwat. Cholera. In the night, listen to echoed moans as they fall. In the depths of the dark, in the still, on the dead. The poet's name was Nazak al-Mala'ika. And that voice you just heard reading was Emily Drumsta, who is an assistant professor of comparative literature at Brown University. Emily has recently completed a translation of a collection of Nazik al-Mala'ika's work into English under the title Revolt Against the Sun, published with Saki Books. We talk in this episode about the politics and poems of al-Mala'ika, one of the most important figures in 20th century Arabic poetry. Her poem Cholera, which you just heard, was considered emblematic of a new poetic form known as free verse, which enabled a kind of innovation within Arabic poetry, while also working within older poetic structures. She heard the story of the horse-drawn carts, and she wanted to create a verse form that would replicate the galloping of horses' hooves as a sort of deathly rhythm. And then the, the, the main line where you're supposed to feel it is al-mawt, al-mawt, al-mawt. Mawta, mawta, da'a al-adadu. Mawta, mawta, lam yabqa ghadu. Fi kulli makanin jasadun yandubuhu al-mahzun. La lahthata ikhladin, la samt. Hatha ma fa'alat kaffu al-mawt. Al-mawt, al-mawt, al-mawt. They are dead, many lost. They are dead, there is no future left. Bodies strewn everywhere, everywhere the bereaved. Not a moment to mourn, not a pause. This is death's handiwork. They are dead, they are dead, they are dead. All humanity protests the crimes death commits. It creates like an endless loop, like just the way elision works in Arabic, right? And you start to lose the sense of what's the first syllable and what's the second syllable. It's just this like endless um, loop. For El Malaika, this new poetic form was not just aesthetic. It also got to the heart of her Arab nationalist politics. More on the anti-colonial poetry of Nazik al-Mala'aka in a minute, when our program with Emily Drumsta continues. Maybe you could kind of give a sense of Nazak al-Mala'ika's life. Where was she born? What was her childhood like? Yeah, so she was born in 1923 in Baghdad. 
and she died in 2007 in Cairo. She was born into an intellectual, literary, upper-middle-class family. They were very well-off, and, and they came from a longer sort of literary metropolitan lineage, unlike a lot of the other Iraqis who, who came to fame at this time, mainly Badr Shekhar Sayyab, who was from the country and really had very little in, in terms of family money. But she studied Arabic at the Teachers Training College in Baghdad and graduated in 1944, which was a really important time because she was there. She was a contemporary with Sayyab and other really important modernist Iraqi poets, including Abdul Wahab al-Bayati and uh, Shad al-Taqa, all of whom were experimenting with form and and the, and the music of poetry and, and probably talking a lot about the tradition and what they wanted to do and also politics and social transformations in, in Iraq. I've corresponded with a professor, uh, his name is Abdul Wahid Lu'a, and he was at the teacher's training college at that time and he says it was just sort of like a, a very heady moment. So yeah, so she graduated from there in 1944 and then she turned her attention to music Two years later, she got she got a certificate or a degree from the Baghdad Institute of Fine Arts. And that was in music, actually. So she had played the odes from a very young age. And actually, the biographies that I found, again, some of which there's a really good one by another Iraqi literary figure named Hayat Sharora. It's like extremely reverent, which is lovely. And she, Sharora, apparently corresponded with Malaika in her later years of life to compile all of this information. That, that biography says that Malaika composed some of her first poems as the lyrics to, to songs that she would perform at, you know, at the Eid in the Malaika family home. So music was a big part of her life, I think, throughout and has been not really written about very much in the focus on free verse and in the focus on her Arab nationalist politics. And it was around this time that a Malaika wrote the poem Cholera. The response to Nalaika's metrical innovation was polarizing, even within her own family. But the broader reaction wasn't quite in the way that she expected. Again, according to her own story of this, she recited the poem for her sister, who really liked it um, as her young contemporary, right? But then she recited it for her father and mother, both of whom were, you know, literary figures in their own right. Her mother was a a poet who published in um, Iraqi magazines and journals. And her father was an Arabic primary school teacher who also published many, many multi-volume works on Arabic rhetoric. And apparently her father in particular really didn't like what she had done with this innovation. So when she was working on this verse form that she's credited with pioneering, I think she thought that her main critics of this new form would be people who wanted to adhere to the classical form, so the Amudi two columns on the page structure of verse. And what's interesting is that she ended up being the conservative one <laughs> in the debate. So, so most of the most virulent criticism, at least that I was able to find in my research, was from people who were like, you're insisting too much on maintaining the metrical foot. Like you need to, we need to get rid of all the trappings of meter, like not just the the two-column form, but all the forms of the taf'ila, which is like the metrical foot in Arabic. So she is interestingly in this position between the classical and the modern, you know, she had to be able to compose in the old forms to be recognized, I think, as a female poet. 
but she also wanted to be known, I think, more as a pioneer, more as an innovator, more as someone who was breaking convention. Could you explain just the nature of her innovation? Yes. So I love talking about this. (laughs) This is my favorite thing. So the phrase free verse, when we use it to translate the Arabic ashar al-hur, is a little bit misleading. Ashar al-hur means something more like taf'ila poetry. What is a taf'ila? A taf'ila is a metrical foot in Arabic in the same way that we have feet in English. And when I say feet, I'm thinking of things like IMs anapests, dactyls. So these are combination combinations of stressed and unstressed syllables in English. The difference between English meter and Arabic meter is that English is a qualitative, so it's accentual syllabic verse, meaning that it depends on combinations of the number of syllables and the number of accents in each line, and that's how we pattern speech in English. But those are stressed and unstressed. In Arabic, what we have is a quantitative verse. So that means long and short um, syllables. So it's a little more like Greek in that respect. So I'm told I don't know Greek. So what that means for the for the, the tef'ila is that it's it's a unit of, of sound that consists of long and short um, syllables in a pattern. And traditional Arabic meters are usually counted as 16. They were standardized by Al-Khalil ibn Ahmed al-Farahidi in the 8th century CE. And so we, we started with the tafila, which is the foot. The next unit of measurement is the hemistic, uh, which is the half of the line. And uh, the full Arabic line of poetry in the classical consists of two hemistics, which sit across from each other on the page, and they're separated by, by a sejura. In English, we say hemistic. In Arabic, the first hemistic is called a sadr, which is the chest, and the second hemistic is called uh, al-ajaz, which is the rump, which it always is a hit with students. So each hemistic is composed of three or four tafilet, so three or four feet, and some meters use the same tafila, so the same foot over and over again. So you know, mutafa'ilun, 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 space, mutafa'ilun, mutafa'ilun, mutafa'ilun. Some meters alternate two different taf'ilat in in the line. So the classic is at-tawil. At-tawil meter is fa'ulun um, mafa'ilun. Fa'ulun, that's one taf'ila, mafa'ilun. And those alternate across the space of the two, two hemisticks. Okay, so that's classical metrics. What Malaika did is she said, okay, I'm going to only focus on the meters that use a single taf'ila. And rather than saying you have to have that taf'ila six or eight times in the line, you can have that taf'ila as few or as many times as you want across the space of the line. You can have one, you could have two, you could have five, you can have three, two, one. And it can go. It doesn't have to follow any set pattern throughout the poem. So that's basically what we mean by a al hur. It's not free verse in the way we understand that term in English or in French, vers uh, libre. To find that form of poetry in Arabic, you'd have to look for what we call qasidat al-nathr, which is like prose poetry, basically. That's the nature of her innovation, and and she had, you know. Her, her big critical text is called Qadaya Sha'r al-Mu'asir, which is Issues in Contemporary Poetry. And that book is, a, is 
like a practical manual in the sense of like she is really not talking about visionary like the poet as a visionary the poet as a prophet the poet as semi-divine inspired imagist she is really like you're not allowed to have more than five tafilet in a given line and the reason is it gets too monotonous for the person and like it's really just like a list of rules and it's like by the way you can't elide a tafila from one line to the next because it's going to confuse the the readers it's like very much a practical criticism like at exhaustive and sometimes boring length (laughs) so all about structure exactly yeah and she's the first person to do this my read on it is regardless of who was the first she was the one who really standardized the practice stressed its importance and aligned it with with up with politics so to me her insistence you know, what I, what I described as her like strident insistence on maintaining the foot, I think we can explain it as kind of an anti-colonial poetics, you know, like really a, a reevaluation of Arabic as a language, Arabic poetry as a multi-century tradition, and Arab rhythms as a form of Arab identity and proud Arab identity in the face of a long history of Orientalism and colonialism that had demeaned um, and diminished the importance of Arab culture as as less than Western culture. Like you know, the entirety of Abbasid poetry is equivalent to like one work by some, one British Romantic poet or something like that. To me, that that insistence on like we want Arab rhythms, we want Arabic forms, was very much like a our poetry's. Not only is it as good as yours, it's better than yours because it's older <laughs> and it's more, it's, you know, it's, it's richer and it's more tied to who we are as, as a people and as a nation. It's like innovating, but not, not so much, not losing sight of and losing track of where we come from and, and what is authentic to this tradition. Because the other side of the coin were, were the poets associated with Shar magazine in Beirut, particularly Yusuf al-Khal, Adunis, Unsil Hajj, and, and a, a whole host of other poets. They were saying, like, we need to get rid of all constraints, including the tafila. We don't want it. We want our music to be inspired by the poet, and the poet should be free to do, to break the line where he wants, not only where the tafila ends. But a lot of that movement was inspired by reading French symbolist poets, French imagist poets, American free verse poets, and a lot of their the language came from a Western point of view. So it's sort of like two sides of, of the debate. Where one, one was the Arab nationalist one of like, let's revive our, our Arab meters against imperialism, including cultural imperialism. And the other side was, let's get ourselves on the map by doing what all of these Westerners are doing. Translation is always tricky business, but it's perhaps especially so with poetry, and perhaps even more so with the sonic and metrical innovation of the poetry of Nazik al-Mala'ika. To convey these themes, Emily drew on poetic traditions in English. You know, I knew that story about the horse's hooves and, and that being the inspiration, so I was like, okay, there must be a verse form in English that is supposed to recreate this plotting. And I looked at a couple of old school, classic, prosodic manuals, uh, one of which is by John Hollander. It's, ca- it's called uh, Rhymes Reason. 
And he had said that an apestic tetrameter has been used both for narrative verse, so, you know, to tell stories in poetry, and as a sort of plotting elegiac meter. And, and the example that he gave and that I, that I looked at was Lord Byron's The Destruction of Sennacherib, which the Byron Ode is about the Assyrian raid on Jerusalem in, I think, the fifth century or so. But it's all about a raid, right? And it's about horses' hooves galloping into town. So an anapest is just an English metrical foot that's two unstressed syllables followed by a stressed one. So it's da-da-dun, da-da-dun, da-da-dun. And what I did for my translation is I turned, I just took the anapest as the base foot in the same way that Malaika took the mutadoric as the base foot. And I repeated it as many or as few times as I needed to per line. In the night, listen to echoed moans as they fall in the depths of the dark, in the still, on the dead. So it was in this political form of poetry that Malaika made her innovation. And she did so in part by taking on specific events like the cholera epidemic in Egypt. But she also wrote a number of poems that were more abstract, such as the piece from which Drumsta's translation takes its title, Revolt Against the Sun. Still, even these poems had political implications. A story that I think we could try to tell, and I, I hope to tell it at some point, is, um, is the way she uses and plays on gendered tropes from the Arab literary tradition to articulate, you know, and create new work um, within, you know, just in spite of the boxes in which she felt, she may have felt that she was being put. So Revolt Against the Sun to me is the perfect place to look for this. It is very abstract, like the speaker of that poem is not located in any particular nation. They are not aligned with any particular priority. They don't seem to be part of any particular community speaking on behalf of the people, speaking on behalf of the poor. It's very much a defiant I. The first line is, she stood before the sun and said aloud, and the rest of the poem is the speaker's like very forceful address to, to the sun. But the use of thawra in the title and, and revolt, to me, signals that there is a politics happening here, and there is so much pressure on women, and I th- in general, and I think also on women poets, to be pleasant, and to be sunny, and to be happy, and to bring light and warmth. And, you know, as Shams is female in, in Arabic, right, so it's the, like to bring care and growth and be the caregivers, and, not, and that labor is not marked as labor. To me, it's very precious. I mean, I don't know that she actually intended any of these things, but to me, it, it speaks to a lot of what we talk about with translation studies and the and the gendering of translation as like subservient secondary labor. Yeah, and she sort of proclaims the night and the night stars and the night lights and the moon as her strong female companions, and she actually refers to the the stars with hunna, which is the Arabic feminine human plural. And she says, hunna sadiqat, like they're my female friends. The most famous women poets, poets in the Arabic tradition are people like Khansat, who wrote elegies that largely take place at night. The night is this sort of liminal space where women are given space to um, speak defiantly in a way that they, that they might not have been able to. So there's that poem. There's other ways to find, I think, that politics in her poetry that 
are not as explicit. Or yeah, I mean, I guess another kind of theme that I saw in Revolt Against the Sun, but but throughout was a sense of kind of her emotional life and the the politics of that. I mean, in Revolt Against the Sun, there's this line, this sadness is the form of my revolt. And and so it seems like that commitment to her emotions in some way is a is a political choice. Yeah, exactly, right. And and just to to be yeah, to be emotionally sort of messy and to speak about sadness and to um it's almost like you know oh you're gonna say that women are weepy it like is that the associations that are made with women poets and women in general in this in this world in this social moment okay like i'll lean rather than saying like no i'm strong like a man i don't have feelings it's more like actually maybe we should bring emotion bring personal emotion onto the page and have it be, but have it be in these very, tri- like strident, triumphant tones, which which are resonating with the whole Arab, largely male Arab literature. Like all of the Abbasid greats are here, not as great fathers, but just in the form of the poetry. You know, like I'm using these forms that you know so well as forms of praise poetry, as forms of war poetry as forms of attack poetry. And I'm gonna repurpose them for these very female, you know, strong emotion, gendered female strong emotions, right? And do you have a sense of how people reacted to her to her poetry? I mean, I, I have a sense of that in terms of form, but was she seen as like a women's poet or, or someone who wrote about specifically women's issues or, or was there not really that categorization? There's actually a good poem from the collection Shrapnel and Ash, which was published in 1949. And the poem is called uh, Toham, so Accusations. I love that one. Yeah, so she's responding to, I think, her her critics. And that seems like, like, a, like a part of this reception history that, that could be reconstructed. So this is Accusations, she says. I express everything that I feel in my life, paint my strange spirit's feelings in color. And I cry when the many long years lunge at me with their frightening eternal daggers. And I laugh at the fate that cruel time has decreed for the wondrous human frame, and get angry when feelings are trampled or mocked as though they weren't rivers of flame. I express everything that I sense, and I cry when life's blows make me real, and I laugh at the strangest things in it and get angry sometimes, but I feel. She's a poet who's stuck in the clouds, they all say, in mirages of stars, there she floats. She is selfish and disconnected from the world as it wrestles with mountains of woe. Prone to fantasy, she builds her world out of mist and despises the world of the living. Melancholy, she hates anybody who laughs as she buries her pale face in grieving. Yes, I'm selfish, I love humankind. Prone to dreams, yes, but my life goes on. Melancholy, yes, I speak with flowers. My emotions are feelings aflame. They say, she is a woman in love with the dark, adores shadows, is smitten with still, spends her life singing poems to fresh mountain streams and describing her dreams to the hills. She loves life, but she muddies its waters by forever imagining death. I love darkness, yes, I will admit it. It is only your dreams that I hate. I love life and everything in it, but I recoil from your day's parade. All her feelings are frozen, they say, and she lives with the past in a frozen dream. She's a Sufi, they say, and her senses are dead. As she loses them, her life will scream. 
Her emotions are frigid, icier than stars, or the cold lullaby of the moon. Though she had a brief flight, still her unmoving heart brought her down from the sky all too soon. So they say, as I wander through silence, sheltered, warmed by the hidden and strange, living life like the gods with my heart full of feeling and my spirit aflame. So that's accusations. I mean, to me, that sort of some seems to sum up what people said about her. Where are these, some of these poems taking place? They're not located in a particular space. They're not located in a particular time. They're not responding. They're not part of a community. They're not speaking on behalf of a of a group. I think she says that here. You know, she's detached. She's got her head in the cloud. She's a Sufi. But the emphasis is always on "but I feel," and that's the that's the big line at the end of the first. So there are some easy ways to see politics and history in her verse, and then there are some more subtle ways to see, like, I would say, a politics, like, like a politics of of form and a politics of, of poetry that's a little harder to see. So after she got her degree, um, that degree in music, she um, taught for many years at Baghdad University. And then in 1959, she earned a master's in comparative literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in the US. And I think she studied Latin and French and English there. So she was a very global um, poet. She had deep knowledge, especially of English, um, and she translated Thomas Gray's Elegy written in a country churchyard into Arabic. That's in one of her collections. She translated some of Child Harold's Pilgrimage, which is another Byron poem. So yeah, she studied in, in the States for two years. And then she went back to Iraq, continued to teach at Baghdad University, she then helped found Basra University with her husband. In terms of the, the way that political events enter her work, I think that starts to happen um, much more after 1952 with uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser's free officers coup. She was very much an Arab nationalist, so we shouldn't mince words about that. She was a fierce Arab nationalist. And the Moon Tree has a series of of poems both in celebration of Nasser's rise to power. There's also Greetings to the Iraqi Republic, which is a poem from 1958 celebrating uh, Abdel Qadir's coup in, in 1958 and, and the independence of Iraq. And there's also uh, three communist songs, which are some of my, my favorite and I find the most interesting poems. And I think previous translators and critics have strayed away from these in particular because they're they're puzzling. They're clearly, to me, they're clearly responding to events from 1959. You know, these these protests that happened in Mosul as there were internal struggles within Iraq between uh, Abdul Karim Qasim and his leaning towards and allying with the communists. And you have, on the other hand, the Arab nationalists who are looking towards uh, Abdel Nasser and towards the Arab Republic and the desire to sort of bring Iraq into that fold. Malaika obviously was on the Arab nationalist side, so she wrote these three communist songs, which are 
surprisingly satirical. And I think people have wanted to preserve her as a poet of beauty, as a poet of sadness, as a poet of romantic themes, emotion, and less as a poet who was actually especially later in her career, participating in and weighing in on these large-scale political events. So, yeah, so Three Communist Songs is interesting because she plays on her reputation as a romantic poet to satirize the sort of suspicions and conspiracy theories of the Communist Party. So I can read a little bit if you like. إذا نزل الليل هذه الروابي فقم يا رفيق نراقبه من ثقوب الدجا في السكون العميق لعل الظلام يعد مؤامرة في الخفاء ويحبكها مع دوء النجوم وصمت المساء فهذه الروابي وذاك الطريق وهذا الدجا كلهم عملاء وسوف نفتش حتى الأريج وحتى المطر نقلب حتى خيوط الضياء ولون الزهر ونفتح ما دبرت كل جاسوسة زنبقه وما روجته العصافير بالرقص والزقزقة وإنا لنعلم أن القمر تآمر فلنصب المشنقة the first of three communist songs. Stand up, comrade, as night falls quietly over the hills. Let's watch it closely, silently, through holes pierced in the dark. Maybe the shadows are plotting secret conspiracies, together with the starlight, scheming with the evening still. These hills, that road, this darkness, they're all agents. We'll conduct searches on sweet-smelling things, even the rain. We'll riffle through the flowers' colors and the sunlight's threads. We'll expose every plot concocted by the lily spies and all the propaganda spread by dancing, chirping birds. We know the moon conspired with the others. Raise the scaffold. Come, comrade, let us crush the jasmine's counter-revolution, the lily of the valley's fraud, the hateful bower's lies. The mountain spring's cold machination seem to know no end. And this late afternoon is spreading rumors of twilight. Beware, comrade, the rose has religion. It smells Arab. So I'm struck by the contrast between nature and its seeming benign aspects, and then the assumption that there's something dangerous there. This is from 1959, so she's already got this reputation as a poet of, you know, the woman in love with night, the poet of darkness, sadness, melancholy, death, all of these things. I think she's playing on her own poetic reputation to mock what I think what she sees as communist um, conspiracy theories and paranoia, really, you know, like the lily, the lily spies, like all the plots concocted by the lily spies, like these people can't even watch a beautiful evening fall without suspecting that every element of it is somehow involved in some kind of uh, conspiracy. And then that last line too, you know, beware comrade, the rose has religion, it smells Arab. So as an Arab nationalist, I think the idea that she's getting at there is like, oh, even the hint of some f- Arab pride 
in a communist setting is seen as suspicious, which I think to her was so much the opposite of what she believed and the, the position that she advocated that that's what she's sort of getting at there. I mean, is there a subtext here that one of the groups to whom communism appealed in Iraq were Kurds, right? Because this was a way to create a different system. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, I don't know the full extent of her politics, like her actual views on the various, the different ethnicities and sects in Iraqi society, but I I wouldn't put it past her to, to be sort of dismissing the the rising up of previously marginalized, and I mean, continually marginalized, but especially like in this context, previously marginalized groups. And I also wanted to ask, is there something about the sound of the Arabic in, the, in this that, that appealed to you that was tricky to translate perhaps, or, or that you thought about a lot? Yeah, um, so for these, I actually, I didn't have an English model in the way that I did for certain elegies and certain other forms, but I will say that they are orniettes, so they are songs, and the first four lines are longer, and then the last two lines are are super short, they're probably like three or four taf'ilat, maybe even two or three taf'ilat, and I think they're meant as sort of a punchy outro to every to every verse or kind of a, a, cor- a chorus, if you will, to the verse of the, of the stanza. It was those short outros that were hard to, to translate because I wanted them to like really land. Yeah, but for this poem, it really wasn't, it was less of a formal interest and more of a content interest. She left for Kuwait in 1970 um, following Saddam's rise to power, I think. That was a major political shift for a lot of intellectuals, and her response was to relocate to Kuwait. And she taught at Kuwait University until 1990, when Saddam also came to Kuwait, of course, with the start of the first Gulf War. So in 1990, she left Kuwait and went to Cairo, and that's where she lived until her her death. And those final 17 years seems to me like she lived quite a reclusive life. And I think she struggled with um, Parkinson's disease as well. So she wasn't really giving a lot of interviews or, or very public in those last years. The last collection of poems that you translated is from 1977, I believe. And and so kind of re- removed from, we, we have some from the 40s, we have some from the 50s. And do you have a sense of how things changed over this huge course of time, over you know so many events? You mentioned her being inspired by Abdel Nasser, of course, his death in 1970. Um, like so many things change between um, those first few poems in the 40s and, and 1977. And do we see that reflected in, in the form of her poetry or, or the themes? So in the, in the collections from um, 1967, uh, The Moon Tree, and um, I think it's from, uh, yeah, For Prayer and Revolution, um, which is the collection from 1975, she is writing about Zion, you know, she's writing against Zionism. For Prayer and Revolution is essentially a great big ode to Jerusalem and a lot of mourning for the expulsion of Palestinians and a lot of, um, you know, decrying Israeli occupation in very explicit um, tones. There are a few poems from of Prayer and Revolution from, from 77 and Shajarat al-Qamar from 1967 
that are, you know, there's one called Headlines and Advertisements in, in, in an Arab newspaper, which is an interesting simultaneous like criticisms of Israeli aggressions in the Golan Heights and the West Bank, criticism of the way that, that makeup and clothing are being marketed to Arab women and rich Arab women and the let and you know mockery of the the leisure class there's a line in there like the arab man summers every you know every july in beirut where he goes on a yacht tour you know and goes to the theater and meanwhile all of these reports are are ha- uh, reports of violence in lebanon um violence in palestine are are also like just intermixed in the newspaper with that so to me that's a very modernist thing right the newspaper is this great modernist text of juxtaposition and like speed to that that I translated that poem because it stands out in terms of theme and also just in terms of tone like there's very little of romanticism in there and at the same time as late as for prayer and revolution which is the the collection from 77 there's you know next to these you know criticisms of Israel there's a trilogy of poems called Trilogy at a Time of Parting Ways, the Lathia Fizemin al-Firaq. And the two of those poems that I translated are a letter from him and a letter to him, which are just these overflowing declarations of love. Like, how can I write my love to you? I have to pour my emotions into the lines of ink. I have to, and it's, you know, and the fact of the, you know, she doesn't name who the him is, but even just to say that this is a letter for a man and a letter from a man and that these letters are giving her vital um, sources and desire and passion, I think, is a huge step for someone who had to couch, you know, romance and feelings and intimate affairs in in much more abstract language earlier in her career. And I think by that by that late point, she's able to say, this is a letter from him. Like I'm corresponding with a man and it's making me feel desire. And that seems like a major, a major change. So it's, it's almost as if the two threads of her poetry become separated and each of them amplified. Like the politics are much more explicit and strident and the emotions are much more grounded and specific in particular experiences. And is she still following her rules about how to write contemporary poetry? As late as for prayer and revolution, and even into the the last poem of hers that I translate, which is from Yugayru al-Wanahu al-Bahar, and the sea changes its colors, even that poem follows the metrical feet. All the way into the 70s, she's writing her Sherhor. And are people still using this, this kind of meter? Less and less. So I'm not super in touch with the contemporary poetry scene. I know the work of Iman Marsal in Egypt, who she is writing prose poetry, a hundred percent prose, very little meter. But even people like, you know, Mahmoud Darwish, the majority of Darwish's stuff all the way through, I mean, even Ahada Ashra Kaukaben, which is um, 11 planets over the Andalusian sky, I think is what it's called. Uh, those poems are in a Sharhor. Like, if you meter them, you will find, and sometimes he breaks, like, he doesn't completely abide by the Mala'aka rules. But we talk a lot about Darwish in, when we talk about modern Arabic poetry, but nobody talks about the fact that this great modernist was writing 
Ashar al-Hur. He was writing in the Malaika standardized form. Even, you know, a famous collection by Adunis, who's that great advocate of Qasidat al-Nathir, the prose poem, his early and most famous collection, Songs of uh, Mehyar al-Dimashqi, they're all, you know, written as taf'ila poetry. So it feels important to talk about form. And I think because of the way the field of Arabic literature has come together, you know, we look, we turn to literature for questions of political and social interest. But to me, there are questions of political and social interest in the form. And if you look, if you meter the poem, you can see like when Darwish breaks the taf'ila, for example, maybe he's talking about the breaking of bodies in war. Maybe he's talking about the shattering of homes in in expulsion. Maybe he's talking about the feeling of being broken in exile. I think there's information to be gained from looking at form in, in ways that we are only just now learning to do. In closing, Emily will read a portion of Nezik and Malaika's poem, The Train Passed By, as well as her own translation of it into English. وهناك في بعض الجهات مر القطار عجلاته غزلت رجاء بدت أنتظر النهار من أجله مر القطار وخبى بعيدا في السكون خلف التلال النائيات لم يبقى في نفسي سوى رجع وهون وأنا أحدق في النجوم الحالمات أتخيل العربات والصف الطويل من ساهرين ومتعبين أتخيل الليل الثقيل في أعين سئمت وجوه الراقبين في ضوء مسباح القطار الباهت سئمت مراقبة الظلام صامتي أتصور الدجر المرير في أنفس ملت وأتباح الصفير هي والحقائب في انتظار هي والحقائب تحت أكداس الخبار تغفو دقائق ثم يوقظها القطار ويطل بعض الراكبين متثائبا نعسانا في كسل يحدق في القفار ويعود ينظر في وجوه الآخرين في أوجه الغرباء يجمعهم قطار Out there in one direction or another the train passed by wheels spinning, pleading I have spent the night waiting for it and day to come. The train passed by, then disappeared into the dark, behind the far-off hills, a feeble echo in my heart, as I stare at the dreaming stars, imagining the wheels and rows of tired, sleepless passengers, imagining the weight of night on eyelids sick of other spaces flickering in faded light and silent shadows. I can see the bitter irritation in souls that grow more worn with every station, their luggage waiting as they must, like luggage wait beneath a layer of dust, sleeping a moment woken by the train, some of them yawning, sleeping, peering out into the wasteland speeding by, then into others' weary eyes, faces of strangers gathered by a train. That's Emily Drumsta. Her translation of selected poems of Nezik and Malaika is Revolt Against the Sun, published by Saki Books. Of course, as always, you can find more information on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, including a link to Revolt Against the Sun, as well as images and a bibliography of related readings. 
You can also join us on Facebook, where our community of listeners is over 35,000 strong. That's it for this episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. Until next time, take care.